Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that offers you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find information about the Creative Writers Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from the first 100 episodes of the podcast into one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writers Tool Belt and that it's helpful to you on your writing journey. Hello and welcome to episode 124 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. This episode is the first in a two-part series featuring a conversation I had with Sandra O'Donnell. Now, Sandra has worked for many years as a coach and agent and has distilled all of the best advice that she has for writers into a new book called Your First 15 Pages, which is a definitive guide for creating a novel that agents will champion, editors will publish and readers will buy. And in this first of these two episodes, we talk about where submissions go wrong, what the reader really wants and what the essential ingredients of those first 15 pages of your manuscript should be. Sandra and I had a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it and find it useful. Here's the first part of it. Okay, so Sandra, great to have you on. Welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We've got loads of questions here that I wanted to ask you, so we'll see if we can get through them. But I want to start with a question that's similar to one I ask most of the guests that come on to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do now, and how you got to this point? Sure. I think you and I have had somewhat similar trajectories. You started, I believe, in business and kind of worked backwards into ghostwriting and then writing yourself. I started as uh, an academic and helped with uh, ghostwriting of academic work for a couple of years and then literally just couldn't take academia anymore. (laughs) Walked away and (laughs) started working on business books. I have a a master's in communication and a PhD in American history. So I was doing a lot of business types of books for people, uh, ghostwriting on that end of things which turned more into ghostwriting and book coaching, more nonfiction, some self-help types of books, and then ultimately fiction. I was had worked on two pretty significant books, one a memoir that I had worked on for um, over a year, and another was a diet book, but with a memoir attached to it. It was a woman who had had severe eating disorders mm-hmm. and become a internationally known yogi and had won a lot of yoga competitions but realized that she was in this cycle of dieting that had become very detrimental to her health. Hmm. So I'd worked on both of those books pretty extensively and uh, gotten them both to agents as uh, a book coach and was super excited for both of these, these writers. The diet book was actually went after by about five different New York literary agents was ultimately placed with um, the, the writer's dream agent The memoir uh, went through, I think we interviewed two or three agents for her book, and she ultimately went with an agent she felt very comfortable with. And both of those books failed to find a publishing home. And unfortunately, a lot of it came down to the agent. At one point, one of the agents, the agent on the diet book had asked the young woman to go off and do some additional list building and course building and some other work um, to beef up her audience before she took the book to publishers. 
And when that work was done and she returned to her agent, the agent didn't know who she was. It was heartbreaking yeah. is what it was. Wow. Yeah. So both of these writers came to me after a period of time and said, why can't you be our agent? You did such a great <laughs> job of coaching us. Why won't you just be our agent? And I was working with a partner at that point. Laura Rothschild is my literary partner. And she and I had, had been working together on a couple of different projects and, uh, we were actually down in Mexico doing a retreat. We had six writers with us down in Mexico and we're working on their books together. Mm. And after everybody left, we had a day to ourselves. And, and I just looked at her and I said, why don't we become agents? So we did. <laughs> so wow. Ro Literary, that's the name of my agency is Ro Literary, yes. uh, is Rothschild O'Donnell Literary. So, okay. yeah. Cool. Okay. Now, one of the things that really struck me when I was looking at the way in which you work and operate as a, as a literary agent, and one of the things I read was that you like to talk to a prospective client before you take them on. So I was just interested in knowing what, what does a conversation with the client tell you that just reading the manuscript won't? Well, we don't sign books. We sign clients. And so we mm. have to know that that's a good fit for us. Uh, we're a very small boutique agency. We have very few clients. We're very selective about the people that we do take on because we are growing an author's career. We want to be that person that's there, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, mm. four books later, yes. not just there for a manuscript, which has become kind of the the business practice, unfortunately, because of the way publishing has changed, because the money has gotten so tight in publishing. Agents, especially New York agents, uh, we're very fortunate. My, my partner lives in San Diego. I actually live in Alabama. And we don't have the overhead that New York agents yeah. have. Yeah. So we have a lot of, of a lot more leeway. We we have the luxury of being able to really work with people for a long period of time. We have a book. We have a writer in the UK. Okay. Who is writing the book that we believe will be the next Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which was a huge book. Uh, Oprah ended up turning it into a movie. It's a nonfiction book about the mother of Malcolm X, and it's an incredible, incredible story. Yeah. She's been working on this book with us for over two years now, and it might take another two years, and we don't care. It's an important story. It's a beautiful story. She's an incredible writer. So we just have a very different model, mm. and we're going to work that way with clients. We need to get to know you a little bit first. Yeah. So that's why we do the calls and have the conversations. So you're an agent for your client rather than the book they write? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I think you've said is that whilst diversity in literature is a good thing, it has to be presented in the context of a great story. So I wondered if you could, first of all, confirm whether I've interpreted that correctly and just kind of talk a little bit around that issue for us. Oh, yeah. I think the issue of diversity is so important. You guys are embroiled right now. Or I've read, I, I read The Guardian pretty closely. And sure. Hanif Qureshi, I hope I'm saying that correctly, and Lionel Shrivener have both had articles in The Guardian about the issue of Penguin UK coming out saying that they were going to champion the voices of diverse authors. And that was going to become part of their publishing model. So there's been a, a pushback on both sides of that discussion. Should we be championing diversity for diversity's sake, or should we be championing 
really fine writers and allow everyone into that the the literary space. So it's a difficult conversation. Championing the voices of diverse authors should be everyone's goal. But that goal shouldn't come at the risk of literary excellence. It shouldn't. Literary excellence shouldn't be a byproduct of diversity. And I Mm. think that's what um, Lionel Schreibner was saying. But yet it came out as or it was interpreted, I think, as something very different. I think she would. She was interpreted as as saying that that literary excellence should come first. And if you're a good writer, it doesn't matter. But there needs to be um, a championing of all the voices of diverse authors. So I think those two things can go hand in hand. We just have to be really careful about how we go about doing that and making sure that the stories are both representative and also excellent that we do decide to champion. Then there's the other issue of a lot of authors feel like they should be putting diversity in their, in their stories for diversity's sake. And I'll give you a, a, you know, another controversy that's um, happened in the UK and it's kind of spread over to the, to the U S is the controversy around the Harry Potter series and Dumbledore and is, is Dumbledore gay? Is he not gay? Um, (laughs) Why didn't um, JK Rowling put gay characters in her books? You know, I just I I just sit back and go, seriously, we're having this discussion. The Harry Potter series came out in 1997. The term LGBTQ had only been around maybe a year in 1997. And at the time, I was in academia at the time, at the time, that term was being was really being used highly in academic circles and activist circles. It was not a term that was prevalent in mainstream culture. You know, if you asked, yeah. if you went back in a time machine and asked, you know, um, children in middle grade what LGBTQ was, they, they would have no clue what you were talking about. If you ask children in middle grade in the late 1990s, um, if they knew a gay person, I I would venture to guess that most of them wouldn't even understand what that term meant. So to be having a struggle now about books that were written now, I mean, what we're going on 20, 30 years ago, and expecting J.K. Rowling to somehow go back and re-engineer those books to make them more diverse... It's unfair to her, but it's also unfair to the story itself, because those books are not about the struggle of children with issues around race or the struggle of children around issues of sexuality. They are the struggle of good and evil. Hmm. And I would argue that there's a tremendous amount of diversity in those stories that represent issues that at the time, perhaps not now, but at the time, most middle grade children were dealing with. So there's Harry, who is an orphan who who kind of bounces from having a you know a loving home at Hogwarts back to this foster family who doesn't really want to have him around. There's Neville, who is the kind of geeky kind of um, outcast who is being raised by a grandmother. You have Ron and Hermione, who are raised who were raised in traditional what we considered then, but probably not now, traditional two-parent homes. There's bullies, there's geeks. Harry's first girlfriend is Cho Chang, who is a young Asian girl. You could read Hermione, who is a young girl with, a very smart young girl with really, unruly brown hair. You could read her as as anyone, you know, but yet we want to 
force that model of race and sexual orientation on a child's story so that we can get diversity for diversity's sake. And I think that, you know, is is somewhat unfair and somewhat detrimental to literature. I mean, are we going to go back and erase the, the whole canon? Are we going to get rid of Pride and Prejudice? You know, we're having the discussion here. They want to take the Laura Ingalls, Ingalls Wilder Award and change the name of that because of the way that she represented Native Americans in her stories. Well, those stories were written in the 1800s. They accurately reflect her experiences in the way that she chose to write Mm. about them. Mm. So I think we have to be careful. Yes, we should have a very wide open conversation and allow as many voices into that conversation as we possibly can. But we also have to champion really good writing at the Mm. same time. Okay. Um, So I want to turn now to your book, your new book, The First 15 Pages. And it's not often I get the chance to get the agent to do the pitch. So I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't resist it. So I'd like you to, before we get into the detail, and we will get into the detail, I'd like you just to spend a few seconds and give us a bit of an elevator pitch on your book. Uh, What's it about? And why should we buy it? Okay. Well, my elevator pitch is that it's an agent's guide to writing a novel that editors will publish and readers will buy. So the reason I wrote the book is that after reading hours and hours and hours, and I'm, I'm, I will give you my dirty little secret here, Andrew. Um, <laughs> right after Christmas, I realized I had not looked at queries for about three weeks. The holidays, we, we had just come off a book tour for the first book that that our agency published. I was trying to catch up with correspondence and I had yes. not looked at queries over the holidays. So I sat down and I did a blip of reading and I kept thinking, what is going on with these queries? What is missing? What is missing? And I realized that in those first 15 pages, writers are just not telling us the story. There's a lot going on on the page. Mm, There are a lot of characters who are kind of coming in and out of the story, but I had no idea why I was reading. And that kind of started the ball rolling. So I really went back and I looked at and took apart a number of best-selling novels. And I thought, what is it that these novels are doing that elevated them to a point of bestseller, that people really engaged these stories and these books? And after really tearing those apart and spending months going through and and, uh, highlighting, and I've got um, a couple of copies of The Firm. I have a couple of copies of The Husband's Secret, The Hunger Games, the books that I use in your first 15 pages to explain the reasons why I talk about things the way I do, and highlighted in notes and endless notes. I started seeing a pattern. And I wrote the book because, you know, we get these pitches, and the pitches are wonderful. I read one the other day, and it's for a, a modern day fairy tale. And I cannot give this this away because the pitch is so incredible. It's so well done. And then I read the first 15 pages and and it was a completely different story. And by the wow. time I finished reading the first 15 pages, I was like, ah, and I'm kind of done. I don't, I'm not interested in this book anymore. I was so excited about that pitch. I had chills when I read it. So when you go from reading a, the elevator pitch 
And then you pick up those first 15 pages and they completely miss the boat. That's when you know that there's a a disconnect between Mm, what people want to do, what they hope to do in their story and what they're actually doing. And, Mm. you know, the reality is you get 15 to 20 pages. If you go to the submission guidelines for most agents, you'll see they say, Submit your first 15, 20, sometimes 25, but 25 is really pushing it. That's all you get to get us interested in your story. Hmm. And if you haven't hooked us at that point, we're done. We move on. So those first 15 pages are crucial. Okay, so I was really intrigued when I started looking at your book. And in the very first page, on the very first paragraph, you say this. If you have been sending out queries and wonder why your manuscript hasn't grabbed the interest of an agent, the answer might be in the first 15 pages you've submitted. Why? Because quite simply, most submissions are missing one or more of the crucial elements needed for a writer to go from unrepresented to signed by an agent to a book contract to a major book contract. So I wondered if you could start by just giving us a little summary of what those crucial elements are, because I know that you refer back again and again to them in the book. What are those critical things that we really need to get into those first 15 pages? Okay, the elements of story, and we all know this, we're taught this um, probably from the second grade on, the elements of story are who, what, where, when, and why. So if I don't know the who, what, where, when, and why, of your story in those first 15 pages, I'm moving on. And it doesn't matter if I'm a, um, an agent looking for, you know, that one great mm. needle in a haystack manuscript or a publisher or a reader. And ultimately, this is about the reader. I mean, it, it all comes down to the reader. We're all working for the reader. Yeah. We're not working yeah. for, you know, I'm not working for a publisher. I'm working for the reader. You know, and the writer should be writing for a reader, not for an agent. So what I'm trying to do is really help writers understand that readers are looking for some very crucial elements in those first 15 pages that keep them going. The way, and there have been tons of studies done about this, the the way people buy books is, first of all, through recommendation. That's, That's one huge avenue that we come to a book. Um, second is cover. Cover plays a huge, huge role in um, in a purchasing decision, whether or not we're going to read a book. Um, and those first 15 pages, they, mm. readers will pick up and read the first chapter of a book. And if they're not interested, they move on. So if I let me see if I've <clears throat> I've got this right. I'm going to I'm going to try and summarize your who, what, where, when, and why. Let me see if I've, I've kind of got it or I'm, I'm, if I'm a bit off, off message or off target, you can correct me here. So we're talking about who the characters are or certainly who the major characters are. Major characters, yeah. What, what they're doing. And, and I, think, I think the implication here is not just the kind of tiny details of what they do, but, but what are they about really? Where are we? So some kind of context. When, when is this happening? And I think that just means like in, in terms of time. Um, and perhaps arguably or maybe not the most important thing why what's going on why why is this happening is that a good summary of those major elements do you want to kind of adapt them if i've got anything wrong there yeah i think that's a great summary the why is really the most nebulous of those though for Mm. most for most people so in in the classes that i teach and in the book i talk about um the husband's secret 
And I use the why of the husband's secret to really illustrate the concept of why. So Leanne Moriarty was reading an article in a paper about people who had deathbed secrets. And that article is really the germ of what started the book, The Husband's Secret. Hmm. So she started thinking about what would it be like if someone had a deathbed secret and it ended up being revealed. That's the why of her book. That's the whole crux of it. A deathbed secret that gets revealed before the person dies. And we're off and running. Now, everything in that story has to tie to that why. And Mm. she does a brilliant job in The Husband's Secret of making sure that everything, every character, every action, every scene is tied to that why. The, The discovery of a deathbed secret before the person dies. So it, I mean, it seems to me that the why you said that's quite nebulous, and I'm I'm sure you're right there. But the why, the the kind of core premise of the book, could be argued to be the most important dimension of it. It could be that if you haven't got that why, the engine that's driving the thing, I suppose, is one way I I think of it. Then none of the rest of it would almost matter. That, that I don't know whether you agree with that. And I did. Could you argue that that's the most important bit of it? It is absolutely the most important bit. And and what happens is if you don't have a really um, well-deformed why, first of all, it's very difficult to figure out what your inciting incident is. And we'll talk mm. about that in a minute. But mm. um, you don't know where to start your story if you don't know why you're writing the story or what the why of the story is. And the other thing that tends to happen to people that don't have a really clear defined why is they they end up off in the weeds. And you can yeah. see that really easily, that yeah. their writing ends up, you know, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, they start wandering, they wander off, and and they're telling a different story. And you're like, where is this going? And, and you know, <laughs> what does this have to do with the main <laughs> thesis or the main plot of this story? Um, so if you, if you find yourself doing that as a writer... Um, you have to ask yourself first, why am I telling this story? What is the why of my story? And then if you see that you're kind of getting off in the weeds, you have to look at those chapters and say, does this directly tie to my why? And if it doesn't, let them go, Hmm. cut them out, get rid of them. Yeah. But I think you're also saying here that that why some some substantive element of it has to be in the first 15 pages. It's got to be there. Um, Absolutely. So Absolutely. I wanted I, I, I wanted to kind of explore this perhaps with a with a real example from one of the books that you use in the first 15 pages. So, so one of them is The Hunger Games. So what what do you think is the why that that Suzanne Collins reveals to us in those first 15 pages that then is the engine that drives the whole thing? Yeah, well, the why of The Hunger Games and what Suzanne Collins is exploring in that is what what links will someone go to to protect their family? Mm. Is someone yeah. willing to die to protect their family? Mm. What is what is the ultimate price that someone would yeah. be willing to pay to protect a loved one? Okay. So everything in that story, if you go back and you read The Hunger Games with an eye for that why, if you if you have that, you know, keep that firmly in mind what you'll see is that literally everything in the Hunger Games ties back to that. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, every decision she makes is about protecting Prim and her mother in some ways, but ultimately it's about protecting yeah. Prim. Yeah, it yeah. is really, isn't it? And I guess, I mean, I guess we could be accused of spoilers if we go into that that story too much, but... <laughs> well, one's been around for a while. Yeah, so, it has. I mean, yeah. nobody has to yeah. read very much of that story to spot a massively crucial thing that happens right around that issue of why. Like, right well, it's in front, the first 15 pages. Yeah. It's the inciting incident <laughs> of the book, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that's why um, I picked it in a way, because I think it's really yeah. clear, a clear, powerful example. Um, it is so clear, yeah. So one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about, again, trying to be practical about this, was this This made me scurry off and find my current writing project and look at the first 15 pages. And I suspect I'm probably in the same boat as a lot of writers in that I was kind of ticking, nervously ticking off this list looking at my first 15 pages and I had I mean particularly with the characters I there's no way I have all my major characters in the first 15 pages I've got some of them oh you don't all. want all of them no okay. no 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 That's no, no. Right, you then. don't want all of them. you want the most <laughs> important I I liken in the book I liken bringing your characters into the first 15 pages um like a dinner party so let's think of the, your first 15 pages as a dinner party you want the right amount of people there that it's an interesting party. We understand why people have been invited and we understand what their role is, but we don't want to bring everybody in no. to those okay. first 15 pages. Absolutely not. It's really the key characters and it's the people who are key to the inciting incident. Yes. And so in the Hunger Games, we meet Prim, we meet the mother and we meet the main character and Gail, who is kind of a, a love interest, we meet all four of those characters, Katniss, Gail, Prim, and her mother, in those first 15 pages. Yes. that's Those are the people that carry the story for the most part. And those are the people we need to understand in order to truly understand the rest of the book. We didn't need to meet uh, the, and I can't remember his name, the guy who announces the Hunger Games. Yeah, I know who yeah, we don't need to, to Mr. know Stanley him. Mr. Stanley Tucci, whoever. Yeah, Stanley <laughs> Tucci in the movie, correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't need to see him at the beginning of the book. No, he can be introduced later down the line. Yeah. And it doesn't affect us getting into the story, getting excited about the story and being invested in the story. So you really have to think about who are the people that um, my reader needs to meet in those first 15 pages? Who do I invite to that party that will get them invested in this story? Okay. And that's perhaps a good way to think of it, I think, isn't it? In that you've interested people with the real and authentic answer to your why question in that first 15 pages. You're not you're not going to go off track after that. That's you've set out your stall, I suppose. Or, or as writers, you have to set out your stall in that initial section of of your work. Um, right. So you've you've referred a couple of times now to the inciting instance. So I want to come and talk about that for a moment. Uh, first of all, I guess it's it's likely that there'll be some people listening to this who they're going. What do you mean inciting incident? What's all that? What does that mean? So I wondered if you could just give us a definition of the inciting incident to start with, just so we're all kind of on on track with this. Okay, the inciting incident is the thing that truly kicks off your story. It's it's what where it's everything hinges. If that inciting incident didn't occur or occur the way that you write it, there would be no story. So let me give you an example. In The Husband's Secret, and this isn't giving anything away, um, it happens very early on. I think it's on the first or second page. The main character in The Husband's Secret, um, 
discovers a letter that her husband has written to be opened at the time of his death. Okay. So that's the inciting incident. Without discovering that letter, there is no book. There's nowhere to go. Now, you could do the book in a different way. You could have her have a conversation, and she discovers from a conversation that these events that ultimately you know, run throughout the book and lead toward the resolution um, that these events occurred through a conversation. But it's the discovery of the letter that everything hinges on. Mm. Once she discovers the letter, the book is off and running. Yeah, yeah. Now that makes sense. In The Hunger Games, it's when Prim's name is chosen. Yes. That's the inciting incident. That's when Katniss has to decide for herself, am I going to step up and protect my family or am I going to let my sister be the one that sacrificed? Without that, without Prim's name being chosen, there is no um, Hunger Games story. So you have to figure out what is the, 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 the event in your story that really kicks off the story mm. and puts your reader in the story almost immediately so that we're like, oh, okay, I see what's at stake here. I get this. I get why Mm, I'm reading this story. I'm ready. Let's figure out what happens. Okay. Um, So I'm going to ask a slightly selfish question because this is more about a project that I'm working on at the moment. Um, But it will uh, hopefully apply to to a number of people listening to this. If I find that the first character, the first main character I introduce and the inciting incident that kicks the story off uh, revolve around my antagonist character rather than my protagonist character. Is that necessarily a problem? Can, can I work with that? I think it's absolutely fine that your inciting incident is driven by your antagonist, but we need to see your protagonist somewhere in those first 15 pages. Okay. Does that make sense? That, makes, that makes perfect sense, yes. Okay. So actually, I want to explore this inciting incident just a little bit more, because I think you also say that not only do you talk about the importance of the inciting incident, but you also say that that incident also has to be in those first 15 pages. Now, is is that correct? And if it is, why should my inciting incident be in those first 15 pages? Well, the think of the inciting incident as a signpost for the reader. It really sets the story up clearly for the reader, and it shows us where the story is going to go. It, it gives us that point at which we're in it. If you put the, the inciting incident off, if you put it like some people want to do the big reveal. I was working with an author who put his inciting incident on page 111. And I, hmm. I was forced to read this one because he's a client. So I kept reading and reading and reading. And I, and I was like, oh, my gosh, when are we going to get to the why <laughs> of this story? Yeah. And it finally occurred on page 111. And I sent the book back to him. And I said, if, if I had not been reading this as your book coach, I would have been done a long time ago. I would have been finished. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have finished the story. I would have walked away. Because there was no reason for yeah. me. I mean, I was just like, why am I reading this? This is just a, if, if you think about it this way, Andrew, if you don't have an ex- inciting incident early on in your story or a why, why we're reading early on in your story, that's pretty clear. It, it becomes a bunch of people walking around on a page doing a bunch of things. Mm. Yeah. But we're not yeah. sure what they're doing or why they're doing yeah. them. 
and I guess perhaps as the reader, I might end up thinking, why am I even reading this? Exactly. Because I don't know, I mean, what what is it that I'm reading if they're just all kind of hanging around but not doing anything? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so I want to move on now and talk a little bit about description. And one of the things when I was looking at, at your work that, that struck me was... I think there's a potential similarity between some of the things you're saying and some of the things I have been saying in my podcast. I I sometimes talk about the importance of what I call sparse and specific description, by which I mean I encourage people not to overdo descriptions, but to be very detailed and very specific in what they're saying. Now, do, do you agree with that? Does that is that kind of in line with what you're saying? And would you qualify that at all? No, I totally agree with that. I, I use the term thick and tight, which I think is the same thing. I think we're both saying exactly the same thing. That um, lengthy, drawn out, um, you know, telling me everything there possibly is about mm. a person from their height to their weight to their what they ate for dinner, it becomes so tedious and mm. so boring. But a thick, tight description that just puts the person in my mind. And, and you know, again, J.K. Rowling was brilliant at thick, tight description. Um, the thing that most people were very surprised by when they saw the first Harry Potter movie and people commented on it quite a bit was that the characters looked like they thought they looked in their heads. Hmm. And a lot of it was her ability to use a very thick and tight description to tell us about the characters that, that she was working with. Suzanne Collins does a, a, a really good job of this in The Hunger Games. So rather than telling us that you know Katniss has to hunt in order to feed her family, she shows us Hmm. her retrieving a bow and arrow. And uh, then she tells us through internal dialogue that it's illegal to be um, hunting in the woods, that poaching is illegal. So we get this picture in our minds very quickly. We see the bow and arrow, which actually becomes the emblem of her character throughout the, Hmm. the three books in the series. We get this picture of her being a bold, brave young woman who's willing to risk punishment to feed her family without Susan Collins saying those words. Mm. Mm. So uh, uh, either, what did you say, sparse and... Sparse and specific is the term I use. Or thick and tight. Yeah. uh, Description should show us the character without all the tedium of, you know, she's 15 years old or however old she was in the book, or she's, you know, she's, her family is um, starving she didn't have to tell us that her family was starving. We we knew that mm. from the fact that she would go out and hunt illegally. I mean, it, it sounds like the, the good old fashioned advice of showing, not telling in some oh, ways. Yeah, it is very much showing, not telling. Absolutely. It's, you know, the Dumbledore description in Harry Potter, and I was looking for it here because I have it in the book, but I can't okay. seem to find it. Um, is about you know him having the the glasses and and the way his eyes twinkle and the fact that he kind of you know doesn't really directly address McGonagall when she puts her concerns out there. The beard yeah. that t- is so long it tucks into his belt. You know the long gray or white beard that's so long it tucks into his belt. Those little tiny details are all we need to draw a very vivid image mm. of Dumbledore in mm. our minds. Mm. 
you know, she did not go to great lengths of describing Dumbledore or even even Harry. I mean, we know that he had, you know, he had glasses and a, a, a very definitive scar. And I love the way that she uses things like the scar because the scar becomes it's a setup and payoff throughout the entire series. So not only was the scar just as a result of, you know, Voldemort not being able to kill Harry, it also becomes a way that they communicate and that they are connected later on Mm -hmm. down the line. Mm -hmm. So if you can take those descriptions that you um, apply to your characters and you use those as setups that eventually get paid off, I mean, that's brilliant. Now, there's a couple of phrases that, that you've used in, in your explanation there, which I just want to pick up on and just get your, your definition of them. Um, okay. The first one was earlier on, you, you mentioned internal dialogue in, in the context of, of the way in which Suzanne Collins presents Katniss. Can you tell us a little bit about what internal dialogue is? And, and, and is there, in fact, external dialogue as well as a comparison to that? And what is that? Yeah, well, The Hunger Games is first person point of view. So the story is being told totally through the eyes of Katniss, and we are seeing what Katniss sees. So we're not given any additional information. We only have what she has and what she knows and what she sees at the time. So a lot of the way that you overcome or that you provide your reader with information that they might need is through internal dialogue, which is basically the thoughts of a character. Okay, yeah. So we're getting her thoughts. She's telling us what she thinks about in those first 15 pages. She tells us what she thinks about Gail. She tells the kind of quasi love interest. She tells us what Mm. she thinks about the Hunger Games, what she thinks about life in um, the district that she lives in. So we get an awful lot of information through her internal dialogue. But again, the way that Collins does that is is very effective because she does a lot of showing not telling she shows us what Katniss is seeing and Katniss is reflecting on what she sees rather than it just being a list of information okay so that's internal dialogue that's internal dialogue so the other thing that you mentioned there was um set up and payoff and I think you mentioned that a couple of times so I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what that is and how we can effectively use it yeah set up and payoff is where you bring something into a story and it can be an item, it could be a phrase, it could be an action that ends up getting revisited in a really interesting way, paid off later Mm. in the book. Mm. So I'll I'll give you an example um, from, I keep keep going back to Harry Potter because it's just easy (laughs) for me. Um, And I know everybody's familiar with it. Yeah, Yeah, it's a good good example, isn't it? Let's face it. So it's, Uh, It's easy for people to understand, and it's easy to break that book apart. So there's a cabinet in one of the early Harry Potter books where Harry discovers a cabinet. He hides in a cabinet. I think it might be in the first or second book. He hides in this particular cabinet. And then in book four, I think it is, Malfoy, it's either book four or book five. Harry Potter fans, please don't send me a bunch of letters about how I... (laughs) I'm getting this wrong, okay? I love these books, but I, I I am not super invested in knowing the exact details. So please, please, please don't send me letters. But in book four or five, Malfoy uses the cabinet in order to let the um, Death Eaters into Hogwarts. Yes. So this cabinet gets reused over and over again throughout the book. And then at some point it shows up again. So it's set up a payoff. And it's really fun for the reader 
we get super excited when we realize that something that was mentioned chapters ago or in another book in a series, we're like, oh, I remember that. I understand why she did that. Oh, how cool is it that she did that? You know, so that's fun for the reader, but it also helps to move the action along. Mm. The flip of that is, I think it's not, quote, don't ever put a gun on a wall you're not going to use. Yeah, yeah, that's just... The worst thing is you you set something up and we all think it's going to pay off at some point. And then we finish the book and we're like, well, what about the little boy that got lost by the pond? I don't understand why, you know, why was... So be really careful about putting stuff in your book and and making it feel like it's a setup, but then not going back to it. Because your reader's disappointed. There's an opportunity there, but there's also, I wouldn't necessarily call it a threat, but as you say, you can't, you can't put the magic ring in chapter one and then not come back to it, can you? It's, it just, it's exactly. just going to frustrate the reader. It will totally frustrate the reader. Yeah. And we'll be looking for it the whole time yeah. because we will think it's, a, um, it's an important element. Yeah. And then if you don't use it, then we're just kind of scratching our heads wondering why you even went down that road. And this, this for me, this is something I really kind of get on my soapbox about actually in, in, in the podcast. I, I tell people that always be careful about things which are going to distract the reader, whether it's you know, bad grammar or bad spelling, or there's a thing that you've mentioned and, and you not come back to it, or they've got bored with a description, whatever it is. But that's, that's the, that's a, that's a real danger, isn't it? When as soon as you, you know, you don't want to lose a reader, you want to grab them from like from the get go and hold on to them throughout the whole thing. And a, a, anything that's going to lose them is, is going to be bad news. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to say, Andrew, all of this applies, you know, I get, I get frustrations. I was on a Facebook group not too long ago. And, uh, I got a lot of pushback from people because they, you know, they felt like this took away from really beautiful literary prose. Mm. But if you go and you read really beautiful literary prose, you will also see all of these elements at work. So I'm not saying this is just commercial fiction. You can write beautiful literary prose, but you also need to keep your reader in mind. Definitely. Yeah. And, I mean, I think as well, a lot of the things that you're saying here are born out in classic stories from across the world that have been written for centuries and thousands of years. And and actually, oh, absolutely. there's a yeah. reason why those stories survive. And there's a reason why people are interested in them. In them. Yeah. I mean, let's look at Pride and Prejudice. It's a, an amazing story that does exactly what we're talking about. In the first 15 pages, you realize that Mrs. Bennett has a serious problem. She has got to marry those girls off or they are going to be destitute. Yeah, yeah. And you're off and running. And that's it. That's the why, isn't it? I guess just right that there in that. The, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that book has such a such a classic opening line. I probably, again, if I tried to quote it, people would probably start writing to me as well. You know, the, the, <laughs> the thing about, um, you know, it's a truth universally acknowledged that every single man with a fortune must be in want of a wife. And, that sets a kind of social construct, an engine for the whole book. Really. So it's, it's brilliant. It is, it's a brilliant piece of work. I, 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 I refer to it occasionally. This is the end of the first part of my conversation with Sandro Donnell. The next part, part two, the concluding part will be in episode 125, which will be released very shortly. Thank you for listening to this first part. I hope you found it useful. 
Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.